Portobello Talk Radio. Listen every Sunday between 9 a.m. and midday on TuneIn and the website www.portobelloradio.com. Listen live or on Mixcloud. It's so dank. Hello, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Helen. I'm part of the Pavilion Hive. And together we stand for supporting local arts ecology, empowering people through sharing knowledge, democratizing architecture through youth and community build projects, combating marginalization and expense of arts education by giving everyone a chance to do art, bringing people together by offering shared experiences in a neutral environment. Each year as a hive, we build a temporary structure in Powers Square to house free discussion and art activities. Our activities build on the legacy of the late Tim Burke, who founded the first pavilion, and on the history of Powers Square itself. To paraphrase from local historian Tom Vague's Getting It Straight in Notting Hill Gate, the square was fenced off and a dumping ground until local protesters and hippies dressed as pantomime animals together managed to tear back the fence and occupy it setting off a chain of events which led to the much-needed urban green space we enjoy today. And so, on the subject of green space and our aforementioned aim to empower people through the sharing of ideas, I'd like to introduce you first to Ivana Philippe, artistic researcher into human-non-human relations, who first introduced me to the concept of the symbiocene. Thank you, Helen. And we are both delighted to be joined all the way from Australia by someone who knows a lot about symbiocene, a term he invented, Dr. Glenn Albrecht. Dr. Glenn Albrecht is an environmental philosopher, or as he calls himself, parmosopher, with both theoretical and applied interests in the relationship between ecosystem and human health. He has pioneered the research domain of psychotheratic with the concept of solastalgia. He has also publications in the field of animal ethics. He was professor of sustainability at Murdoch University in Western Australia, but also University of Sydney and University of Newcastle. In his book, Earth Emotions, he gives us elaborate look on positive and negative emotions humans have with respect to the earth. So welcome, Glenn. Thank you very much. It's, a, it's lovely to be with you. Glenn, could you tell us please in your own words, what is the symbiocene? Well, the symbiocene is a meme and I've created it deliberately to uh, pose it in opposition to one of the dominant memes that we have uh, in our current culture and in science, which is called the Anthropocene or the Age of Humans. The Age of Humans, as most people would be aware, is one that is seeing major problems for all dimensions of life on the planet, including, of course, human life. Even COVID-19 is connected in some ways to uh, the human dominance of the planet and the, the bringing together of uh, unlike species in spaces where these uh, possibilities of virus transfer and disease transfer can take place. So some would argue that we're currently at the, uh, or within 
the the grip of the Anthropocene and it's taking us in a direction which is entirely negative. The sixth great extinction, uh, climate change. There's so many things going wrong that I decided that in order to shake from the grip of the Anthropocene, we needed an equally or perhaps more powerful meme, a cultural replicate mechanism to think about a future that is the opposite of the Anthropocene. And so the symbiocene, symbio comes from symbiosis, scene means period or age. The symbiocene is the period where humans reintegrate with the rest of nature, where I argue that the dominant mechanism for interrelationship on this planet between different life forms is symbiosis. And so humans arose from that matrix and we've separated from it and we now urgently need to return to it. So although it is a meme, it's a construct that I have deliberately created to help us think about the future, I think it's based on science. I think it's going to help our culture uh, revitalize itself. And I think most importantly, it's going to give our young generations a base for genuine optimism about what can happen in the future. Uh, at the moment, I think we're stuck in a, a, a period of, uh, well, we're studying collapse. The French call it collapsology, uh, paralysis, anxiety, depression. There are so many things that are going wrong at, at this moment in time that to, to offer a, a vision of the future, which is profoundly optimistic, seems uh, in itself profoundly optimistic. But I would suggest that this is a future that uh, is realistic. It's one that uh, offers genuine hope. Uh, the one future that offers no hope whatsoever is the Anthropocene. And so I think I'm, um, I'm being honest and realistic about our chances as a species by offering the Symbiocene as its alternative. Uh, thanks, Glenn. Could you tell us a little bit more about your use of language and terminology? Were there particular words you felt needed replacing and what does uh, a new language give us as a tool to imagine something new? It's, it's a difficult question, that one, because there are so many ways of uh, tackling this. One of them is that we now have so profoundly transformed the world in the Anthropocene that the language that we use to describe our position with respect to that world has become substantially redundant. I mean, I, I, I used to read with great joy books from traditional uh, societies, uh, the, their leaders, phrases like the wisdom of the elders were used to uh, convey uh, a, a wisdom about the way the world works. But now we now we're now living in a world where that wisdom of the elders has been replaced by uncertainty and chaos, particularly through climate change. And so one of the reasons why I create new words is that we are living literally in a new world. And that's part of the subtitle of my book. Another reason is that the dominant language that we use to describe our position has become corrupted by forces that are determined to keep the world exactly as it is. And so t terms like 
sustainable, sustainability, resilience, even terms like regenerative are now being used by forces that want to keep the world in exactly the same place uh, that it is now and on a trajectory that's leading us to disaster. So that's another reason for wanting to uh, create new terms. Uh, I accept completely the, the validity and veracity of the Anthropocene as a term, but I see it as a kind of metastasizing cancer that I want uh, out of my body. I want out of it as quickly as I can. And so uh, I, I accept the Anthropocene as a term. I don't wish to replace it with the symbiocene, what I wish to do is to see the Anthropocene finish. Uh, the symbiocene comes with it a whole set of positive emotions that we can have with respect to the earth. And so some of my creative energy as a thinker has been to think about, well, what are the positive relationships that we have to the earth? Why don't we have words for them or concepts for them? Uh, and one of the reasons is that we've taken them for granted in the past because they were uh, to be had for free. They could be uh, experienced virtually anywhere on the planet. And now, as uh, Bill McKibben once wrote, uh, we're seeing the end of nature. You can, there's nowhere on earth you can go to get away from plastic pollution, the fallout from uh, nuclear um, tests and, and bombs. The, the, the position we're in now is one where the, the world that we once uh, experienced as uh, generous or positive, uh, really beneficial uh, emotional and psychological relationships uh, is under threat. And so before it goes, uh, and you know we have that Joni Mitchell moment where don't it always seem to go? You don't know what it's got till it's gone. Well, I, I think we've still got enough of this earth around us to connect to these residual positive experiences that we get. But in English, we haven't named them. We just think, oh, oh it's nice to go to the beach. Or we talk about tree hugging and maybe a bit of forest bathing. If you've read some Japanese uh, literature on the role of uh, relaxing in forests, but most of us experience nature without any kind of positive emotional connection that we explicitly understand and name. So part of my work is to name things that have been hitherto taken for granted. And it's an urgent task because we're seeing the possibility of these positive emotional connections to the earth disappearing almost as rapidly as the uh, uh, the Anthropocene uh, expands. So it's the world has changed. It's it's that we need new language. We forgot to name things that were really important. So we need to uh, commence that pro uh, process of explicitly naming things that were uh, forever kept uh, assumed. You know, we didn't need to name them because they were free. You could have them anywhere. There was no need to really think hard about them. E.O. Wilson described this uh, dilemma or situation as we, we'll often go to the ocean to walk along the shore without having really any idea of why we're doing it or why we possibly have to put it into words. We just go and do it because, you know, you might say it's natural to do this. 
It's part of being human. But now we can't take for granted the situation of being able to experience the, the best that nature offers. Uh, so we need to start to do two things, which is to explicitly name those positive things that we got and also to think about, well, do we have names for the negative experiences that are preventing us from experiencing these positive earth emotions? So in my work, I, I, I compare and contrast positive earth emotions with negative ones. It's uh, partly how I structure my thinking. Thanks. Um, to follow on from this, Ivana, you had a question about the word resilience. Yes. Um, regarding the words you mentioned, like uh, sustainability or resilience, you call it also a perverse resilience or negative resilience. Uh, so how can we reinvent, or you help us to reinvent those words? Um, and also in relation to these negative emotions, uh, I would like to mention your concept of solastalgia. How can we recognize that? Can you a little bit tell us more about how can we recognize those negative emotions um, in, in our relationship to the nature? I'll, I'll deal with the last comment first. How do we recognize our negative emotions? I, I think we recognize them intuitively uh, but the sort of research that I've done that connects my thinking to the real world is that I, I'm dealing with people who have been affected by large-scale open-cut black coal mines, so open-pit, I don't know what you call them in your particular part of the world, but we call them open-cuts in Australia. And the word cut is quite appropriate because it's like a huge wound on the face of the earth. These mines can be kilometres long, half a kilometre deep and uh, up to half a kilometre wide. And they cover 500 square kilometres plus of the area of the Hunter Valley in my part of New South Wales. So we're dealing with something which is, as we say in Australia, in your face. It's not an abstract philosophical concept. There's dust, there's noise, there's explosions. The night sky is ruined at night because they work 24-7, so they work under these huge arc lights at night. Uh, they feed power stations, they pollute, they feed train lines which take the coal from the coal mines to the port for export to the world. We, we lead the world in exporting greenhouse gases and we import climate change or climate chaos. So the people who live in this area experience distress, it's physical and mental. And what I've tried to do on the mental side of that distress is describe it as an existential experience. It's not biomedical. It's, it's not something that psychiatry or medicine can fix. It is a, a, a condition of, of one's existence where these uh, physical uh, assault on one's uh, quality of life, well-being, I think in ancient English law, it's called amenity. Uh, to have that taken away from you without your consent, uh, without any re uh, redress uh, possible, is something which profoundly impacts on the psychic stability of people. And so my concept of solastalgia was created because we didn't have a word in English to describe this lived experience of 
chronic negative environmental change. And it surprised me when I couldn't find one because it was clearly a strong emotion that people were experiencing. It's unlikely to be confined to the Hunter Valley of New South Wales. And therefore, I thought back in 2003, we needed a word in English that might capture this space, this conceptual space of distress caused by negative environmental change. I knew at the time that climate change was occurring. There was nothing new about that. And it didn't take long for people to see the connection between solastalgia and climate change. And there are so many other environmental issues that are occurring that give people this lived experience of distress that uh, the word has gradually began to, you know, began to uh, take hold as a way of explaining our emotions on the face of the contemporary earth. So that's partly why I create terms as well, that there, there's a space there that the, the English language and indeed many other languages simply don't have, including Indigenous people who have never experienced climate change and whose, whose language equally uh, doesn't contain concepts to describe this profound melancholia, this pr profound existential distress that people feel when their home environment, a loved place, is being desolated. And I often tell the story of the Inuit who had to use a word in their culture, which is Ugianatuk, which means a friend who's acting strangely. I guess the contemporary version in London would be a uh, your friend is getting drunk and becoming uh, excessively aggressive, they've become Ugianatuk. Well, they had to take that word from their culture and describe their climate and the, the environment is becoming hostile to, to them, that the climate had become a friend once trusted and, and loved, uh, being converted or transformed into an enemy, somebody who's suspicious, somebody who's no longer uh, trustworthy. And so if Indigenous people and uh, within their own languages are finding it difficult to describe what's going on in this contemporary world, then of course everyone else is too. We're all in the same boat or the same world, I should say. So as a result, there is a need to create words where the circumstances demand it. Now I've forgotten, of course, what the first part of your question was because my answer was too long. Yes, my question was regarding the reinvention of the terms, for example, a term of uh, resilience. Of course, yes, and you, you mentioned perverse resilience. Well, what can I say? If Donald Trump likes the word resilience and uses it to describe what's his policy on uh, uh, on climate, you know there's something wrong with the term. Uh, you know, I don't really need to elaborate my argument that much further. But the idea that uh, we can make things resilient is sounds inherently good. But unless you define what it is that's to be resilient, then of course, uh, if you're an anti-capitalist and somebody wants to make capitalism resilient, then it's not a positive contribution. Um, Perverse resilience is the idea that uh, various institutions, corporations, uh, activities that humans are engaged in uh, are going to continue despite the fact 
that it's highly undesirable, in fact, possibly disastrous that they do. They're perverse because they ought to go, but they're being promoted uh, endlessly as the saviour of the human race. So in Australia at the moment, we've got a government that's spending huge amounts of money to prop up the fossil fuel industry. They want to expand uh, natural gas. They want coal mining to expand. Well, that's an example of perverse resilience. It's not an example of what you might call good resilience. So the same with sustainability. It's been argued probably for the last 30 years that unless you specify what it is that, that is to be sustained, you're not saying anything meaningful. So what I've argued in my book and, and as, a, as a teacher in the university sector for the last 30 years, that un unless you specify very carefully what it is that you wish to support or, which, or what you wish to critique, then it's a lot of empty rhetoric. And so we've wasted huge amounts of time arguing for sustainability when nobody knows what it means, what it stands for. And we have this process of corruption, which I call corrumpalism. Corrumpe uh, means to destroy. It's worse than corruption, which is just a scratch on your record, which might annoy you. Corrumpalism is actually the destruction of the very system that you're attempting to, uh, to live within. So this idea that language can just be a, uh, you know, a casual uh, component of the way we understand the world I think is mistaken, it's critical. Um, the philosopher Wittgenstein once argued that the, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. Uh, and I would argue that the reverse is also true in a sense, and that is that the expansion of my language means the expansion of my world. So if our, our language is impoverished, inadequate, simply not there, and creative people, and I'm just uh, positing myself as one example as a, uh, as a philosopher, but philosophers, artists, uh, musicians, there are so many creative people that can add something new to our understanding of the world. And that's precisely the point I take about the symbiocene, that art, music, literature, everything is going to be informed by a new wave of creativity that will generate new ideas, new concepts, new forms of music, new forms of design. Everything is going to have to be created with effort. Uh, I think we will finally meet our destiny as homo sapiens, where the word sapien means wise or thinking animal. So far we've been incredibly dumb and it's time to live up to our name. Thanks. Um, Ivana is going to, in a moment, lead us on um, a meditation. Um, and uh, the reason for this is we want to connect uh, with the, the symbiocene on a personal level as well. And I wondered then if before Ivana begins this, maybe you could talk to us a bit about the term symbiography and how we yeah. can approach it in our everyday lives. Well, I started my book, Earth Emotions, by thinking about my biography. What what is it about me that produced a bird-loving, nature-loving philosopher who's, uh, who can't do anything else in life but think about our human-nature relationship? And then it, it got complicated because obviously there are many things that go on in a person's life. But uh, a bit like uh, 
solastalgia. I wanted to tease out the particular things in my life that related to the environment and who influenced me, what experiences did I have, where was I that profoundly influenced the way I thought. And so I thought, well, this is more than a biography. This is something that tries to give an account or a summation of me as an environmental person, a greenie, if you like. How did, how did I end up becoming green? And so I wrote a chapter which uh, reflects on the influences of my life from childhood to the, the then present, uh, now two years ago since I actually wrote the book, where I look at uh, uh, places like uh, I grew up in Perth in Western Australia, one of the most uh, highly biodiverse places on earth, uh, uh, incredibly high levels of endemism in the plants uh, and animals. Uh, I had a grandmother that was in love with nature, uh, amazing woman who, you know, was an animal carer uh, well before that term was even invented. My grandfather was a, a forester, and so he had a profound connection to the forests of southwest Western Australia, and she she was in love with the the, the orchids, the ground orchids, the native plants of Western Australia. And she was also a wordsmith. And so she was a champion Scrabble player and, uh, and crossword person. So I learnt the love of words from my mother. And so I put all this together and realised that biography wasn't a strong enough term to describe it. So the symbios, the S-U-M-B-I-O-S, is the Greek for living together or for coming together. And I decided that this coming together of all these green threads into me, Glenn Anthony Albrecht, now 67 years of age, living in Wallaby Farm as a farm ossifer in New South Wales. It's a story that needs to be told because otherwise if I just start as a philosopher talking abstractly about uh, events or, you know, uh, creations like solastalgia as a concept, People are perhaps going to understand my words, but they're not going to understand where they come from, what kind of emotional uh, being I am, and why is it that I even worry about these kinds of issues. I could just as easily be watching the football and having a nice glass of red wine. Thanks. Um, Ivana, would you lead us in the meditation? I know we've got some more questions to ask, but maybe we can do that after the meditation as we kind of open up the group and, and get questions from other people as well. Thank you. So I thought to start, to upstart our today's symbiocene action, as it is not just a concept, as Glenn said, I will lead you through a short meditation. And if you're driving, please sustain from it until you're safely parked. So let's take a deep breath. We share our breath with each other and with other species. In the deepest sense of sharing, we share our breath with trees. Trees breathe in our carbon dioxide and they breathe out oxygen. We breathe in their oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. 
this exchange is the heart of a symbiosis. We share our breath. Without trees, where would we be? So, for a moment, think of a tree that you exchange this breath. Maybe it is your tree that you pass by every day. It may be a tree that you look at from your window right now. Your tree that you communicate with. It may be an oak tree, big tree, olive tree, birch tree, cedar or pine tree. Any tree. Look around whenever, wherever you are, and I hope you see a tree. If you cannot see one, imagine one. So, if you are next to your tree, you can come closer, you can hug it, sit beneath it, or as you like, feel comfortable. If you are looking or imagining a tree, look at it deeply. Just look at it. Look at its body, its roots, trunk, bark, branches, leaves. Look at the whole tree. Look how it opens up and stretches from deep within the earth towards the sun. And it does it every day. Look at the movement of its branches and leaves, how they shape choreography between each other, touching and brushing off, leaning on, shaking up and down. Or Maybe they are calm and motionless to our eyes. While you are observing, you are breathing. Your belly moves up when you inhale and down as you exhale. You breathe out. And three breathes in, three breathes out, and breathe in. Imagine this stream of your breath traveling to your tree and its leaves, and then another breath full of oxygen traveling from the tree top to you. As you are breathing, your eyes are observing. Your eyes are moving with the branches and the leaves. Your belly is moving with your breath. So, you are moving together 
creating a new choreography. Here, I will leave you for a minute to try it on your own. When you feel comfortable, bring back your attention to your own surroundings. As we come to the end of this meditation, recall that this cycle of mutual exchange goes on and on and on. As before, so often, without your thinking. Every day we breathe together. Maybe we forget this often, but this is the reminder that we are connected with our trees. You can do it every day to deepen your relation and reconnect in a similar way with all nature. Plants, trees, bees, birds. And in the context of the present situation, this may be our chance to shift. While we keep distance from each other, we can get closer to the others with big O, our non-human companions. So keep on breathing and thank you. Thank you, Vanna. Thank you. At this moment, I'd like to open the discussion wider and invite questions from listeners and other people who are with us today. Uh, we also have with us Natasha Langridge, who's a writer, and artist Constantine Grass, who are both very active with projects in the local area. And perhaps they could share some of, of their reflections on the concept of the symbiocene and uh, any projects that they think have a tie into some of these ideas. And we also have with us uh, Isis Amlak, uh, also from the Pavilion Hive. And uh, I open the floor to some questions. I've got a question, but first of all, thank you for that lovely meditation. It's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, and and Greg and Glenn, sorry, your 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 um, stuff is beautiful also. And I would love to know you talk about reintegrate humans reintegrating with nature. Can you give us an example of how what that might look like? Well, it involves the replacement of every toxic artifact of the Anthropocene with a benign substitute. We'll call it a symbiofact in the symbiocene. So it's a big task, given that so many of the things that we use uh, manufacture, fail to recycle, are uh, completely toxic to not only uh, the rest of life on this planet, but they're entirely toxic to humans. 
and nobody voted for that. Nobody put their hand up 50 years ago or so and said, look, I, I really would like a culture that pollutes its own environment, pollutes the atmosphere and leads itself onto the path of the sixth great extinction and then the seventh great extinction, which is us. So this has just unfolded in a, in a way which is in entirely kind of mindless, accidental, and if it's deliberate, it's now based entirely around maximization of profit. And so what I imagine, and bear in mind, I'm a philosopher, not a, a designer, an architect or an engineer, but if we're using materials that are toxic, we have to find substitutes that are non-toxic. Uh, and it's fairly simple, uh, like plastics uh, can be recycled, but that's also an energy intensive activity and maybe plastic's not such a great idea anyway uh, we can use cellulose and other plant-based materials to substitute for just about every product that is made out of plastic if it can't be well then maybe we shouldn't have it in the first place our current forms of energy uh, you know, the fossil fuel-based system is, you know, now a known disaster unfolding before our very eyes. Renewable energy is a no-brainer, as the Americans would say, if they had any brains. Uh, the, the issue is that uh, we need to see our current array of renewable energies as a transition to something which I would call symbiocene energy. And I, I saw a glimpse of that uh, I think it was research being done in uh, in the UK of uh, bacteria that can produce uh, biologically pr uh, created electricity and they go, they're actually creating walls within uh, houses that could be generators of electricity based on, uh, you know, microbiology. Uh, we, we've got all sorts of things uh, in the realm of what's called biomimicry where we attempt to copy uh, in our human artifacts and design things that are already working quite well in nature. And given that most things in nature have got a few million years of research and development within them, uh, probably good things to follow. Uh, I also think that we need to follow the processes that make life work on this planet. So we need symbiomimicry as well. You know, the idea that uh, symbiosis with other organisms could be productive in a way that uh, sustains humans in the true sense of the word sustains is something that I've written about for the symbiocene. And so we've been, we just need to rethink everything. We, in the Anthropocene, we've built in a way which has gone against the totality of the rest of life. And in doing so, we put ourselves and the rest of life at risk. Well, if we want to reverse that, we have to start to think about, well, uh, how do we uh, make ourselves an economy which is based on materials that are biodegradable, materials that are non-toxic, materials that are using energy which is truly renewable and non-polluting, not exploitative of people in countries digging out you know, bits of lithium from holes in the ground, that sort of thing. So it sounds radical but what i argue is radical is the idea that we could continue with the toxic pollution of the anthropocene if uh if it's hard to think about the the material base of the symbiocene it means that we've alienated ourselves hugely from the rest of life 
and it's time we stopped sleeping. Sleepers wake. So I hope that answers your question. I do have other examples. Uh, we're now making, for example, leather out of mushrooms. We, we make self-repairing bricks out of fungi. Uh, fungi turn out to be some, you know, one of the most amazing uh, life forms that we share the earth with. And we could use uh, our, our symbiotic relationship with fungi uh, uh, to build bricks. Uh, the, the possibilities are totally endless. Uh, I've seen clothing made out of uh, mushrooms. I've seen uh, the whole of the uh, clothing industry transformed through uh, hemp-based products and other products that are nowhere near as destructive on the environment or people as the, the current uh, fashion industry depends on. And so that's one of the reasons why I argue, why I argue in the symbiocene that we uh, our creativity and our work is sort of cut out for us. We, we would have endless amounts of work, uh, no unemployment if we start to make this transition because the job is so huge. Uh, and it should be fun too because it involves intelligence and creativity. It's meaningful work instead of what some uh, wit called it bullshit jobs or the non-jobs that are being generated in the Anthropocene. It's just truly shocking the kind of work that people are now uh, attempting to perform within an, uh, an economy that's uh, uh, toxic literally for the planet, but it's also toxic mentally for the people who are trying to exist within it. So the Symbiocene offers a way out, but it's a way out which is based on science. It's a way out which is based on human energy and creativity. Uh, so although a philosopher may not be seen to have a great deal to offer in terms of practical advice, uh, what I appeal for in my book is that, that all other forms of creativity from the arts through to the sciences through to the uh, technology and practical uh, uh, arenas and, and skills that humans have, uh, they have to get involved in this transition themselves. It's, it's imperative that we begin to use our intelligence to get out of something which is inherently toxic. So it doesn't answer your question with a huge list of things that transform us from a, a, a toxic culture into one which is based on a symbiocene culture, uh, one based on symbiosis. But it gives a few clues as to the fact that we are actually already doing it and that we just need to be doing a lot more of it. I look forward to reading your book. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> and and I, th I think if we if we all uh, meditated like uh, like Ivana's lovely meditation, if we all did that every day, then I think things might change, and we might start to cultivate our own human nature to um, go towards um, sanity and uh, nurturing rather than competitive, mindless greed. I think that's a really important, you know, if we want to change anything, we have to change and we have to change our consciousness. It's a very important part of that. Exactly. And all, all I've added to that is that our emotional makeup is one of the big drivers of how it is. I also echo what Natasha's just said there. Um, it's great that Glenn has um, getting us to think critically about these issues. It seems to be sort of thinking, feeling, and then acting. 
Sorry, Glenn, I was just saying, yeah. thank you very much. You, you're getting us to think critically about these. And then there's also this balance of thinking, feeling. So Ivana's meditation is a sort of a feeling aspect. So we, he's trying to get this continuity of how we might re- understand the ideas, feel them, because we need to sort of feel and understand them, live them, and then act yes. on them. So I've these been described as having unstable internet. These are some of the challenges I find as a, as a community artist who's working on the ground and then trying to work through ideas but then to work them with, with, with communities, to work them through. So it's really, it's really interesting. Um, and I really liked what you were saying about the ideas. Yeah, we do need to come to new language and new ideas to cut through things. Often the media is dominating this and often is presented in melodramatic terms. So climate change and all those impacts. So unless we have the direct experience of those, we often just follow it via the media. So it's really interesting that we need to stay ahead of the media and sort of have our own local networks of understanding things around that. Um, And one other other observation I was going to make was um, just before the COVID hit in, we were very much, us little Englanders over here, were very much obsessed with Brexit. And that sort of dropped off the radar a little bit, but that still has a, a big part to play. And we're currently going through some new trading deals. So I wondered if... If we're going to make a new trading deal with you over there in Australia, how, how might you like to see that done? Well, I, I think the uh, the current political climate is that, yes, uh, they're very keen on, uh, on new trade deals, but I have to say I'm not that keen on moving things across the world in planes and ships and uh, large trucks. So uh, although it may not be part of Brexit because I know that the motivation for that was uh, you know, politically loaded and uh, also was connected for a long time and maybe still is questions about refugees and, uh, and the ethnic minorities in Europe. Um, the, the issue that I have is that uh, international trade is part of gigantism on the planet. The only way that um, you know, uh, Great Britain, the United Kingdom survives is by the mass importation of products and services from all over the world. Its ecological footprint is ginormous. It's probably bigger than Australia. And so as a result, we have to rethink that kind of gigantism. And that involves, for me, a, re, uh, a rethinking of uh, regionalism, what it means to live within one's own means, what it would mean to reduce the ecological footprint of the way we live. Uh, and that certainly works against the current system of international trade, globalisation, free trade, economic liberalism, etc., etc. So, um, you know, I'm not good friends with our current Prime Minister. And if he wants a free trade with England, I probably uh, oppose it. Thanks. Isis, did you want to say something? Yes, greetings. I had a couple of um, reflections or comments, maybe questions. So the two things that struck me, oh, actually, I'll that struck me about what you said, Ellen. But, uh, the, one of the things for me was about the reshaping mm-hmm. of language, the restructuring kind of a new paradigm of language, because me as an African, obviously there was a whole issue about the way in which language particularly European-based languages are structured in which they, they, well, I suppose they frame white privilege and power structures and notions of, you know, fallacious notions of, of, of white supremacy, etc. And it's, 
it's embedded in the language you know white is good and black is bad and you know and, we, and a lot of these things have come to the fore with the recent situation in america and all the and so for many years i have been practicing the restructuring of language i'm, I'm also a poet so i use language to counter the narrative and so i find it really interesting that you've actually done a similar thing but with in regards to the planet and regards to um the future that we have i'm also sort of i suppose i'd say 90% vegan i do fall off the wagon a little bit for a bit of cheese but apart from that i i you know and i i try to live a cruelty free life and i have done for many many years so i'm totally um in step with that so for me i suppose a couple of things are, that i thought about were that i don't eat anything with a face as i call it i can't bring myself to eat a creature how does that play into moving forward because i feel like eating animals is 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 a, is a really serious issue that we have where we think as human beings we can just butchers we also there's an issue of things like zoos for a long time i've said like i mean when my children were little they're in their 20s now i would take them to a, a zoo because it was a way but as i evolved i realized i felt like it was a form of i don't know where the human zoos they put africans and other indigenous people on display in european cities for me going into a zoo where animals is is the same thing and i feel like particularly with primates to me they're like they should have the same rights as human rights if you want to call it human rights but they should have the same recognition so i'm wondering in new societies how we look at things like eating animals putting them in zoos but also the contradiction with i don't know if you saw michael moore's recent film uh planet mm, of I've, humans yeah. yeah where he's got a lot of pretty critiques the um environmental movement and there's a lot of issues there so you know where do we go in terms of respecting our fellow creatures on this planet and also actually finding a true and real way forward of not kind of you know you know neoliberalism has a way of co-opting and i feel like there's a certain extent what michael moore's film showed there was a lot of co-option of that movement and i'm just wondering how we can move forward in a true way of of um an alternative mm well i i i hinted at the michael moore uh narrative in my critique of where we are with respect to energy uh i agree that you know the current forms of renewable energy are inherently environmentally destructive in many respects uh but i see them as transition fuel or, or transition energy to a symbiocene future where the forms of energy that we have don't rely on uh earth or human exploitation to produce that energy now with respect to animals um i'm a symbiovore so what i've done in my life is put a priority on the way food is produced and how it relates to the what we might call the ecosystem health of uh, the the region the place where food is produced so uh, i guess my first priority is as uh uh an environmental thinker is to say well i don't really care at this stage what kind of food it is that a person is eating they can choose that themselves so you might be uh a piscatorian you might be a carnivore you could be an omnivore you could be a vegan uh you could be a vegetarian but if your food is being produced in a way which is destructive of the earth and people then no matter what you are it's ultimately a contradiction that can't be continued so it's no good just saying well i'm a vegetarian and that somehow 
uh, privileges a person over being uh, a carnivore. If you're a, an Inuit person and you don't have um, veg vegetable uh, production available to you as a human being, then that to me is not something which should be criticized as a poor option. It's a way of being human. It's one of many ways of being human. Um, if I wish to eat in a modern industrial world, uh, it's, it's very difficult to choose anything that's been produced in a way which respects symbiosis, which respects biodiversity, which respects the health of soil and respects the fact that we have to have a livable climate to produce food in the first place. So to, to live as a sumbiovore, I have to take into account all of the things that are used to uh, produce food. And that includes any vegetable products that I eat, any cheese, any meat, any other product that I'm, I consume as protein or energy. Now that makes my food choice very difficult. Uh, once I've sorted that out, I can then choose to be an omnivore or a vegetarian or a, um, you know, a fructivore or whatever type of vore I want to be. But it means that I can eat without destroying the world. So that's how I think about this problem. It, it's, it's a, I don't mean higher in the sense of morally higher. I mean it's higher in the sense of this is a world where, you know, approaching 8 billion people are in a crisis with respect to food production. Uh, the whole system of food production needs to be rethought. And then if we can get food production uh, produced in a way which is consistent with symbiosis, the relationships that we have with other uh, beings on this planet, and indeed the microscopic world, you know, the, the microbiome, the soil microbiome, what the French called terroir. If we can get that right, we can then begin to have really good arguments about uh, whether or not to be a vegetarian or an omnivore. Uh, so that's, the, I, I haven't bought into that debate directly, but I think I've addressed it by saying, like everything else, uh, food choices are critical for the future of our species and all other species on the planet and that uh, I take that as my highest priority uh, as, a, uh, as a thinker and as somebody who enjoys food. I have a, a question from Paprika who's listening in and some comments, Glenn. And okay. Says, uh, thank you so much for this beautiful and heartbreaking talk. I love the call to live up to our homo sapiens name. I'm a Green Party member, are you? How can we get together and add pressure on our governments to invest in alternative materials and highly tax supermarkets for use of plastic, which is supposed to be out of supermarkets by 2020? Right. Well, uh, I, I'm a supporter of green things. Uh, I was, uh, uh, I guess, uh, helped pioneer the establishment of the Green Party in Australia, uh, particularly in New South Wales. But I'm not a member of any political party, uh, and nor am I particularly uh, optimistic about the role of parties in the current political environment in solving any of our local, regional, continental or global problems. Uh, 
that said, I still vote Green. So it's, it's not as if I choose to opt out of the political process. So the, the political position that we're in at the moment is one that, again, I've addressed through my thought that democracy, by definition, demos means of the people. Crassy means rule. We, we, we've invented a system of ruling ourselves, which seems to be failing dismally uh, in doing what it's supposed to do. So I've suggested we need some biocracy, which is rule uh, for all beings. You know, it's similar to the deep ecologists who argued that we, we need a council of all beings uh, to represent the ideas of non-human uh, beings in governance. I've just tried to take that idea a little bit further and, uh, and to suggest that politics has to be rethought, uh, that human uh, hubris has uh, gone to such an extent that we think that we can rule for everyone uh, and every type of being on the planet. And of course, that to me is part of the problem, not part of the solution. So that one is one that I've addressed through a, uh, a, a again, a, a concept which may not be that new, but I've given it a name. Uh, some biocracy, uh, I've even sort of turned around Abraham Lincoln's definition of democracy to include all beings. And uh, you can run through, you know, government of all beings, by all beings, for all beings. And so it means we have to come up with new ways of governance and new ways of thinking for the symbiocene. And that's not going to be particularly easy either. And what was the last aspect of that question? I didn't write it down. It was, was it about uh, plastics and supermarkets and how to put pressure on governments to stick to what they say. Well, it's a, it's a good question and I wish I had an answer. But, uh, I mean, the at a personal level, all I can say is that we're, we're gradually making progress in Australia eliminating single-use plastics. Uh, we're gradually getting rid of um, non-reusable forms of uh, consumption. Uh, it's slow, but it seems to actually be uh, gaining traction. So that seems to be a relatively easy thing for people to do. If we're having trouble with it in the United Kingdom, um, I, I I can't really speak for how you'll get around that, but uh, we in Australia had a, an Australian Broadcasting Commission journalist run a program on waste and just ran through the Australian people a, a complete story about the mountains of waste that we produce, where it comes from, how it's not being recycled, how uh, plastic is ending up in, well, we know the definition of plastic. It, something which takes the shape of whatever it uh, it falls into. It's what plastic means. It takes the shape of everything on the planet now, including the inside of our guts. So it's an important uh, environmental education issue. So unless we get the uh, people who consume well-educated about what plastic is and what kind of a problem it presents to the whole earth, not just uh, lo local rubbish issues, then I don't know where we go uh, after that. The for me, environmental education is just critical. Uh, Isis, you had a follow-up point. Yeah, um, Glenn, thanks for coming back on that. And I, I 
hearing what you've got to say, I take on board uh, quite a, you know a lot of what you say about particularly the example you gave of an Inuit person and you know historically traditionally the what food that sustains them. I would say the same with a calamari um, dweller or someone who's you know from a particular community that have lives a particular way and aren't really invo involved in the exploitation in terms of the food that they eat if it if it happens to be another creature. However, how do we? How do you equate what you're saying with the people like ourselves who are privileged in the sense of, you know, compared to many people in the global south? So we're living in, in, in places like Australia and in, in Europe, in England, and we're consuming animals that have actually probably been quite cruelly treated, have been exploited, mass produced, uh, often, you know, that, that also health wise, you know, all the, the chemicals and the, the growth, growth hormones and everything. So the whole concept to me, how does that surely there must be a maybe a differential to say that if we're thinking about how we eat, perhaps those of us in these parts of the world should not be eating other animals, but perhaps we should be recognizing the people in certain circumstances. Because I can't see how the two, you know, see what I'm saying? I get one side of it, but yeah. yeah, I can't see how I could justify eating a cow. Well, to me, it's not the eating of the cow so much as how was it produced and was it killed humanely? Um, because that that's also an issue for indigenous people in uh, various parts of the world. Um, uh, we now have technologies that kill animals humanely. Uh, we didn't have them a thousand years ago or in Australia 50,000 years ago. So we can't actually address the issue of uh, sentience in animals in a way that uh, is, uh, you know, uh, I hope uh, an advance over where we were thousands of years ago. Uh, you know, I've done field work with uh, Indigenous Australians who hunt and kill uh, uh, introduced feral buffalo from, uh, from Asia. The buffalo had become a, uh, a huge problem in the environment. They're also dangerous to humans, so the population had exploded that something had to be done because the buffalo were uh, killing humans, um, uh, messing up water holes and making life extremely difficult. And uh, so I'm, I'm very familiar with uh, the issues with respect to hunting and killing a buffalo was incredibly difficult and uh, I was observing people trying to kill buffalo with underpowered rifles and that sort of thing. My job was as the uh, research team ethicist to try and figure out what was going on to the animals. Uh, the uh, the buffalo was were to be uh, eaten by the indigenous people as well. They saw the introduced animal as part of a food bank for them to rely on when they couldn't uh, get other forms of food as hunters and gatherers. So this issue of killing and eating meat is incredibly difficult. Uh, where I agree with you entirely is that the current industrial intensive system of food production, whether it be meat or uh, palm oil, is part of the problem that we have uh, with respect to uh, ecocide on the planet, that we are levelling the Amazon for, uh, for things like uh, you know, food for cattle. Well, of course, I oppose that kind of issue, but I've got people that produce cattle in eastern Australia on pasture. Uh, they're organic. Uh, they are people who are concerned about the, f the fate and condition of their animals. Uh, you can buy local 
you don't import from, you know, we don't import meat from other parts of the world. So it's possible to then think about free range grass fed organic meat, uh, which is locally produced and locally consumed. Now, that's a very different issue for me. Uh, that's perhaps beginning to uh, address the issue of living in the symbiocene. Uh, importing meat carcasses from all over the world, importing food from other, all sorts of food from other parts of the world, which is non-sustainably produced, which is uh, exploitative of the earth, of the animals and of the people who are part of those industries is not something I support. And I, I'm on the record of not supporting that kind of industrialised agriculture and, and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the industries that involve people in that, uh, that activity either. goes back uh, a very long time. So I, all I can do at this stage is say that there are certain circumstances where meat production consumption is defensible it may in, t in turn be something I don't want to have a, anything to do personally, but that's my personal choice. But the, I don't rule it out as part of uh, a production system of protein on the planet because, you know, 95% of the people on Earth eat meat. It's a pretty big call to say we should uh, stop them from eating meat full, you know, uh, across the board. Uh, so... I can see the benefits of a vegetarian diet for health. I can see the benefits if we became vegetarian with respect to uh, biodiversity and a whole lot of other issues, but not if we have industrialized systems of the production of vegetables. You're in no better position than if you were producing meat. And so I'm, I'm addressing those gigantism industrialized factory systems of production and consumption first and then see what's left for us to eat. Does anyone else have any comments or questions um, before we start to close? I think Natasha has a poem to end with. Okay, um, so I wrote this in lockdown. Um, it's called Me and You. If I go and you get it, they'll say I killed you. I'll say I killed you. You'll say, don't be ridiculous like you always do. Deny everything. You do. People are dying. I've seen them on Twitter. Look, I said, look at the doctors pleading for us to take it seriously. But you won't listen. Not to me, not to anyone. You never do, never did. Now. In all this, you want me to get on a train to Sussex when the whole fucking country is in lockdown, staying at home, staying local, not traveling. God knows how long I'll be there for. Might get stranded there with you. The restrictions might get tighter. Might not be able to get back to London. Might have to stay in the countryside with the trees and the fields and the birds and you, just me and you. You know you're impossible, don't you? It's hard to be with you, mother, 
my mother. I want to come. I want to be there with you, having a picnic in the long grass, like we used to, lying on our backs, blowing smoke up to the sky. Such a big sky. I'm scared I'll never see you again, that you'll be dead before this thing is over. This thing that is killing people. It is. You know that, don't you? I'm scared the cancer will get you first, that you'll be dead. And I, ne I never came to see you, though you asked me to. I didn't come. You'll die alone. But mummy, what if I come and I carry it to you, bring death to your door? What if? Thank you, Natasha. That was amazing. So beautiful. Um, I think we'll end our conversation here for now, but I really hope that we can continue it. Thank you so much, uh, Glenn, for sharing your ideas with us. And uh, thank you, Ivana, for helping us to connect with them and, and making this happen. Um, thank you all for joining. And thank you, Greg and Portobello Radio, for helping us share this discussion. And likewise from me, from Australia. Thank you. Portobello <laughs> 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 Radio. Calling out, Calling across, out London across London and the rest of the, the world, world from the heart of Fledbrook Grove. Grove.